Welcome to another edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. We have a return guest today, Dr. Jason Kendrachuk, the Canada Research Chair at the University of Manitoba, an infectious disease expert, molecular pathogenesis of emerging and re-emerging viruses, right? Have I got that? That is perfect. <laughs> Welcome back, Jason. It's it's just time we thought for kind of an overview. Where are we at? We're talking about vaccine passports, whether people who are vaccinated still need to wear masks, new variants, the whole the whole nine yards. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. Now, you also did some work in Saskatchewan for the last year at Vito, uh, where the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization, where they're developing uh, vaccines against COVID. Mm-hmm. What's what's the latest there as you've left? Are that they? I think they were going into a testing stage. Yeah, yeah. So they, they've gone through their phase one trial. They're uh, looking for recruiting for, for phase two. So the vaccine certainly is moving ahead. Um, you know, when when it will ever get licensed, I think, is, is a bigger question. But certainly, I think it shows the power of, of uh, Canadian science and being able to develop Canadian vaccines and also be uh, responsive to, to public health crises. Uh, this is a question that keeps emerging, that right now my understanding is that all of the vaccines that are out there that appear to be working really, really well, only yet have emergency use status. Nothing has been approved and said, okay, this is this is going to work, it's, it's going to be fine. Why are we still in that gray zone? I think part of it is because we're still in a public health emergency, and that's really the reason why. Um, a lot of this is trying to get vaccines out to people once there actually, you know, has been some, uh, you know, causal proof uh, of effectiveness and, and efficacy of, of getting those rolled out to populations as quickly as possible without getting mired in trying to get through licensure first. So right now, you know, it is just getting vaccines out to the communities, and I think they're looking at trying to get licensure done when we're at a period in time when we have good protection from the virus and we're not uh, looking at overwhelming hospitals and, and certainly overwhelming numbers of cases. And has this got anything to do with, and in your world you would understand this, uh, legal liability? As long as these vaccines are sort of just approved for emergency use only, then if there are negative side effects, nobody's actually accountable or can't be sued. I mean, that, you know, that's certainly beyond my level of expertise. I mean, the one thing I can say is that, listen, the, the, the idea of looking at these long-term effects of vaccines, that's going to be a rolling process for years, yeah. right? So when we move out and get things, you know, once they're even licensed, there still is that post-licensure period where adverse events continue to be reported and continue to be monitored. So I think we have to appreciate that, that over time, these things will be looked at. And certainly, again, when we go back to looking at, at vaccines as a whole, really adverse events are always seen within those first few months following vaccination. So that, that again, gets back to this idea that in terms of long-term effects, it's not saying that they could never happen, but certainly history would at least suggest that the period of of time beyond a few months post-vaccination, we should be in a pretty comfortable period of uh, of certainty. How are we collecting data on this? Now there's, I don't know what percentage exactly of the population uh, not quite half in Canada that's been um, double vaccinated. How are they collecting research? If I'm sitting here, I've got two vaccines in my arm. So if I'm experiencing some kind of side effects, how is that information captured? 
Yeah, so a lot of it. So certainly, you know, places like the United States have basically a, a, an open system, the VAR system, that allows you to basically go in, create a profile and report an adverse event. So what we have to keep in mind is that there is the ability to, to utilize the system to say that any sort of correlative activity could be related back to vaccine status, right? So if you, you know, if you broke an arm or if you took a fall, um, we, we've seen different types of, of events that have been reported that aren't linked back causally to, to vaccines. So those, those events are always reported. And certainly when you go back to your physician, you report that you've had some sort of an event. The physician also can report that system back to uh, the, the health regulators for, for these uh, products. So that information does continue to get collected and collated over time. But, but as my understanding in Canada, it's just kind of voluntary. I mean, nobody's asking me. Nobody said to me when I got my second shot, look, over the next couple of months, would you please fill out this form and send it to us so we know whether these things are working? It, it's a great point, right? So so all of this is done in a voluntary basis. I think for people to feel like they aren't, um, you know, I don't want to say rely, but there is a regulation forcing them to have to report back. And I think Again, you, you have to kind of come to this comfortability of trying to get people to feel comfortable using the system. So using this in a voluntary basis, but also trying to get strong uptake from the community to do this. And where, you know, where that kind of fine line lies with, with getting enough data back to, to give appreciable data um, that, that can be used to say whether or not there have been any adverse events recorded, that's a bigger question. Because it seems like we've got all these you know, uh, test populations everywhere, whether it's the U.S. or Canada or Israel mm -hmm. or the U.K. I mean, it seems like there should be a wealth of knowledge that it would be helpful for people like you to to have access to. It would. Well, and that's what I. <laughs> Well, and that's the great thing about the public open uh, or the open data set access, right, is that you can okay. go in and you can go in and get those reports from across the globe. And I think that's the most important part is we have to consider the fact that, listen, what, what we see in different regions of the world may not be the same as what we see in Canada because we have those regional differences and certainly differences in the reporting systems. So you can go in and, and be able to look across different communities and different populations and say, are we seeing similarities in events or are we seeing any uptick in events that are being reported across different uh, areas of the world? That's always a puzzling question to me because we've seen this in our own country. The numbers in Ontario go up or the numbers in Manitoba go up and the numbers in Saskatchewan go down. There are no walls. There are no formal yeah. borders. We're all the same people. Why does that happen? Yeah, you know, I think this gets back to a lot of the, you know, kind of you know, social science aspects of yeah. trying to understand behavioral differences from population to population. Certainly, some, you know, I, I just got back from Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, at the point that we left, had the highest uptake of, of vaccination in the country. Now we get to Manitoba, and Manitoba now is, is leading the country in vaccinations when, when you know, in the past, we were uh, predominantly in the lower tier of vaccine uptake. So I think a lot of it, um, it, certainly there's, you can go back to that idea of hesitancy, but you can also look at what is going on in the population. Manitoba has had that uptick of cases, we had a very rough third wave. I think people have gotten genuinely uh, or generally concerned about what may happen with the Delta variant or other variants that get back into the population. So you start to see that people maybe are a little bit more forthright in saying, I'm going to go get vaccinated. Now there's you know broader accessibility for me in the community, and I feel more inclined to be protected. And maybe, you know, in Saskatchewan, because they've been able to kind of keep, you know, cases at least at a, at a fairly, you know, kind of you know, plateaued rate 
and certainly with hospitalizations keep a plateaued rate, you don't have that same, I think maybe uh, air of, of caution in, in a lot of people and saying, oh, this is a clear and present danger right now. Um, so maybe you don't have that, that same uptick uh, at, at the same moment in time. You've raised an interesting question that's kind of in, in the back of my mind about when we start changing the messaging. Okay, yeah. first it was, you know, you've got to do this, you're, you're essentially, you're going to die or you're at risk of death yeah. if you don't do this. And then we went the full range to, you know, win a million bucks if you go and get uh, vaccinated. We've got people really resisting when we're told with a double vaccination, you still need to wear your mask. Yeah. Where are we right now? What what do we need to be saying to people about how to deal with this situation? It's a great question, right? And I think this goes back to starting to look at the communities where we're seeing really no uptake of vaccines and trying to figure out historically, have we seen this in those communities and what are the underlying reasonings behind that? And to be fair, in, in some of these communities, certainly here in Manitoba, in, in you know, certainly the, the southeast region of the province, we have you know, historical precedents for, you know, that goes on you know, century or, or beyond in terms of, of persecution that may have taken place um, in, in other communities. That has all come back to this idea of why there may be a, a lack of trust within uh, government mandates or, or government recommendations for, for healthcare. So I think that what we have to do now is kind of appreciate that, listen, we've, we've been able to get out to the majority of people that have wanted to get vaccinated, even those that were hesitant. I think we've done a good job mm -hmm. in getting a lot of those people uh, you know, in, into, uh, into vaccine uh, super sites and getting them vaccinated. Now we have to concentrate on those areas where it's gonna take more time. And certainly I, I think a, a far greater understanding of the community to, to build up trust to get to get vaccinations done. And that's not gonna happen overnight. There's not gonna be, I think some you know, miracle of, of money or, or you know, products that you can provide those communities that's gonna change that decision process overnight. Um, but we have to invest because it's not just about COVID, it's about beyond COVID. How do we get vaccinations um, increased within those communities for things like influenza and beyond that, that you know, continue to present um, a clear and present danger for us every year? So you, you've got in this country, by and large, the people who were willing and enthusiastic. You've even got a lot of the hesitant uh, mm -hmm. signing up and, ag and agreeing to go. But then there are these groups, pockets, as you say, across the country for different reasons. So it, it, my view of that is, OK, you've got to build that trust and, and target them in a positive way. But we're also at the time of saying, Okay, well, if you've got a vaccination, you can do this and you'll be rewarded. Yeah. And if you don't, you're going to be punished and we're not going to let you go to the movies or the concert. Yeah, and that brings into uh, into play some serious ethical questions, right? And certainly, again, I'm I am just a simple virologist, but when we get back to this idea of looking at at this, you know, of vaccine equity among populations, one of the concerns that there always has been with passports, this idea of vaccine passports, has been if you can't make vaccines equitable in your communities, you may have, uh, you know, certain communities, whether it's lower socioeconomic status or, or particular demographics of your population that may be ostracized based on that, um, even subconsciously being ostracized because maybe they weren't able to get to the vaccine clinics or maybe they weren't made accessible to those communities. So we have to be very cautious in, in how we portray that message of saying, 
if you have you know, your you know, dual vaccinations, you can do X, Y, and Z, because we want to ensure that those communities that haven't had access do get access and do get the, the, the same benefits. So it, it's very, very difficult to navigate that territory. And, and thankfully, there's people far smarter than me that are trying to do this. Yeah, the privacy experts are are wrangling this uh, yeah. as we speak. But you know, I'm I'm kind of half joking, but not. I mean, you're a Saskatchewan boy moved to Manitoba, uh, and here we've got the case where you can't go to a Winnipeg Blue Bombers game unless yeah. you can prove you've been vaccinated. But you can go to a Rough Riders game. Uh, so when those two meet. Uh, yep. What are we? I mean, these are very practical questions. I'm I'm not even being flip. This is this is our real world. No, it is right, and, and certainly you know, for me, I work in a lot of international areas. So so things yeah. like you know my my yellow card for my vaccine status for yellow fever, I'm used to carrying that and, and used to the fact that I could be denied access to certain countries if I don't have it, um, and that's part and parcel of protection of those communities. Um, for us, this is very novel, right? This is not something we're used to as Canadians. Um, and certainly, again, we have to get back to this idea of saying, if we're seeing communities that, that do not have vaccinations, um, what is the historical precedence for that? And are there underlying socioeconomic or, or sociodemographic uh, reasonings and social determinants for why those communities have not get vaccinated? How do we meet those to ensure that those people can get access? The um, the recent stats on the the uptake of the federal government's uh, app, which said you know mm-hmm. it was supposed to tell you if you'd been in contact, it was so low, uh, people yeah. wouldn't uh, take it up and wouldn't use it. And I think it is a nervousness about government having data. We're we're seeing when the government puts out legislation saying they want to monitor what we're doing online, people really react to that. So the the vaccine, I mean, as you say, you're an international traveler, you're used to having that there mm-hmm. and showing it, but this is going to be beyond building trust. This is a whole yeah. other willingness on the part of the public to share their most personal information with big tech, big government, whoever it is, neither of whom they trust. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that comes into play again with this is this idea of transparency, right? So I, certainly, you know, I, I'm somebody that worked in the United States for seven and a half years. And, uh, you know, th- there were massive issues. Certainly, you know, I lived down there during the NSA crisis. So there were all these questions about transparency and, and illegal, do- uh, you know, documenting of, of data and personal data. So people have, you know, have kept that in mind and have that historical precedence to, to be concerned. Um, we have to be very cautious as we move forward and ensuring that each step of the way that we're ensuring with the public that there is that open transparency to say, this is the data that's collected, this is what's accessible, and here's what will happen if there is any sort of data breach. Um, again, you know, looking at doing this from, from the pivotal point of the people that are putting all these systems in a place of being able to say, this is the limitations on being able to access your data. This is why it's safe. And this is why we should be doing it. So it should be a constant uh, conversation with Canadians as opposed to just having something implemented that all of a sudden we have to do uh, to be able to to do the the things that we've normally done uh, as part of our uh, society for for years. And that's going to fall on employers too and university presidents and whoever is going to require um, this to be. What do we do about that gray area? And 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 I know I'm asking you to talk about sort of policy matters, but 
from your vantage point on this, what do we do about the people who naturally had COVID and are there for immune and therefore cannot show that they've had two vaccinations? Ah, yeah. So this gets into such a big area, right? And and this was one of the questions that certainly came out very early on in, in 2021 was, what do we do with this population that has had validated, yeah. confirmed prior infection? Um, and what do we understand about their immunity? Well, certainly we've seen, um, I think, some movement towards suggestions of, of even single dose vaccinations for those people to ensure that you know they are getting basically a, a boost that would be equivalent to what we would see with people that had two doses of vaccines. What we have to keep in mind is that when we look at, at natural infections, we're looking at a breadth of disease, right? So we're looking at people that have asymptomatic infection all the way to severe infection and everything in between. So you have immune responses that are up and down all over the place. Now, if you go in and you boost those people, at least the data that's been suggested so far is that even with a single dose of vaccine, now what happens is you remove some of that noise and now you get a nice consistent amount of immune response across those individuals. So what you can say is that regardless of of background infection, we at least have confidence that people that have this dosage of vaccine with prior infection are going to have a normalized immune response that's equivalent to other people that did not have infection and got the two doses of vaccine. Whether or not that that will occur quickly, I think is still a question because we have to get enough data to have confidence in that. But certainly we're seeing some some movement and discussion towards that. But I think for now, you're going to see people that are still going to be required to have those two doses of vaccine so we know that their immune response is, is consistent. So in a sense, you're telling us we have to trust the medicine more than the body's natural response. Yeah, and and I to be fair, I do because of the fact that the vaccines uh, are meant to basically activate our immune system in a very specific way. So we think about this idea of natural infection. One of the things we have to, to consider is that natural infection doesn't necessarily give us sterilizing immunity or doesn't ju- just give us lifelong immunity. It likely gives us some amount of immune response and some amount of antibody response that's sustained over time, but it doesn't necessarily equate to a, to a very robust response. So we have to be very cautious in that. And I think that's where we look at vaccines Vaccines are being registered based on overall antibody responses, T-cell responses, all of those immune correlates of protection that that we need to to see. So that gives us a better indication of whether somebody is going to be truly protected from subsequent infection and or protected from severe disease. I want to talk a little bit about these variants because it was interesting to hear, I mean, others have said it, but the British Prime Minister this week again saying, look, we're going to be living with this. It's not like yeah. COVID is going to be over and then we're going to get on with life. COVID is now present. COVID is now a fact of life. Yeah. But every other day, I mean, we've been through, well, they're all named differently. And, and then we've gone to Alpha, Beta and Delta. And now we've got Lamba out of Peru. Uh, and it's in 29 countries already. Yeah. So again, that's the question. A, what is it? Um, we can't stop travel in the whole world. It got yeah. to 29 countries, amazingly. So what do we, mm-hmm. is this an ongoing response? The easy answer is yes. And, and certainly I know that's exhausting. Uh, it's certainly exhausting <laughs> for me to have to say it. Um, where, where we sit right now is that while we, we look at, at good vaccine coverage in North America, certainly in Canada and the US, good vaccine coverage starting to take place in different areas of, of Europe and, and even into the Middle East, yeah. what we have to be considerate of is that 
there still is a very large portion of the population globally that has not seen any vaccination yet. And that's where our concerns lie in regards to variants of concern. Because to be fair, when we start looking at communities that have no vaccination coverage whatsoever, if you have a, a you know, particular variant of concern that is more transmissible, now what you're looking at is the fact that those variants could take hold of those populations extremely quickly, much faster than we've seen previously. And that's where I think our true concern lies is that, listen, the vaccines have been, I think, you know, kind of, um, you know, just unbelievably uh, uh, historic um, uh, discoveries for, for COVID-19 in the sense that every variant that's been thrown at the vaccine, certainly the mRNA vaccine so far, we've seen continued protection against. Um, that may change a little bit over time. We may see a little bit of fluctuation there, but ultimately we're, we're seeing good protection against severe disease. So that should give us some confidence. What we need to be focusing on is this idea that how do we get vaccines out to those areas of the world where we aren't actually seeing any vaccination coverage? Because to be fair, if we want to get through this idea of COVID and we want to get rid of this idea of continued emergence of variants of concern, the more people we get vaccinated, the better we're going to do globally. But when we, like, what, what do you know about Lamba? Like, what is, yeah. where does that come I, from? It's a great question, right? So uh, everything we know about Lambda has really, you know, kind of, uh, you know, been fit into the last seven months. So looks like it first emerged in Peru in December 2020. Um, it certainly has been circulating in Peru. Um, we've seen now that it's moved out to different countries, though. I think the question that remains is, does that equate to greater transmissibility in those additional countries? Or are we just seeing introduction, but no subsequent, you know, uh, fitness advantage where it's starting to transmit wider and wider and wider? Um, what we have seen so far is that there certainly are mutations within Lambda that should give us some a little bit of pause and say, okay, there are some you know some uh, some you know, flags within this particular variant of concern or variant of interest, I should say, that we need to monitor to see whether or not this does lead to enhanced transmissibility in communities and whether we see any change in disease severity or, or vaccine uh, uh, vaccine coverage. But we haven't seen that so far. And I think that's what's important is that the data that's been accrued so far, looking at, at neutralizing antibodies, looking at the ability of vaccines to protect, so far the vaccines continue to hold against Lambda. So yes, it's on the radar. We certainly have to be monitoring it. But I think we have to also take a step back and say, listen, the vaccines have worked very well. The more people we get vaccinated, the smaller the pocket of people that potentially can get infected or likely transmit widely these variants that, that are showing up. And if we continue to shrink down that population, the lower percentage of, of a chance there is or risk there is of these variants of, uh, of interest and concern um, you know, becoming present in, in our own communities. We talked about this a little bit the last time when you were on, but so we we all remember SARS from 2003 yep. um, and, and now COVID 2019, 2020, 2021. Uh, what, what have we actually learned about that? What, I mean, this is your world. Yeah. What do we know now that we did not know in 2003? Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing for us that we, that we need to identify is that coronaviruses certainly are a pandemic threat, right? So coming out of 2003, out of SARS and moving through 2009 flu and beyond, Coronaviruses were, you know, kind of heralded as being this, you know, potential pandemic threat. But I think a lot of people maybe didn't take that completely seriously. We were very focused on influenza um, because that is something that has continued to present as a pandemic. 
COVID hit us very, very hard. And I think it showed us ultimately how susceptible we are to a virus that is able to transmit widely within our communities, which is not what we saw with SARS in the past. It was transmitted primarily in healthcare settings. So for us, what, what do we understand or what do we need to understand? The biggest thing right now is what is the origin of this virus? We, and we can get back into this debate about whether this was you know, a lab leak or a gain-of-function study or whether it was natural origin, but we have to have, I think, some clarity on where this virus is circulating in nature because ultimately it did come out of somewhere. Whether you look at, at, at lab leaks or gain-of-function experiments or natural origin, it, it was somewhere within wildlife originally before it, it was identified. And that to me is the biggest question because we have to think about this idea that in our world today, we are in constantly increasing, um, I guess, contact with, with wildlife, certainly with bats in many areas of the world, which are, are you know, unfortunately animals that carry a wide variety of viruses. So we have to start to figure out, okay, what are the communities that are the most likely to see spillovers of these viruses? And how do we start to try to decrease the risk of those spillover events from occurring. And that's not easy. This is not going to be something that we're going to be able to take care of overnight. But we have to be very cautious that this has happened once before. It is going to happen again because it has historically happened over and over and over again. And these events are happening with increasing frequency. So the crossover from species to species. So you're saying it was there somewhere, obviously, yeah. in, in the natural world. But then when it starts to be studied and looked at in labs and, and the, the evidence is, I guess, increasing a bit by bit that something happened at the lab in Wuhan, but they were still working with a naturally occurring virus in the first place and then seeing what they would could or should or shouldn't be doing with it. I won't talk about weaponizing it. That's a separate yeah. issue. But, but to just study this stuff, there's always the risk. You go into a lab, if you're not properly dressed and and uh, you, you're susceptible to things you're working with. Certainly so, there is. And, and listen, in, in my area of the world, you know, I, I've worked in in you know high containment labs for, for over a decade now, whether it was BSL-3 or BSL-4. Uh, you know, these areas are... I feel extremely safe in working in those labs, um, but I feel safe because I'm extremely cautious and, and certainly very risk adverse, which is, I think is what you want to have in people that are working in these labs. And certainly the oversight and the screening process requires that you have people that are going in that are trained very well for this. So I think what we have to think about is certainly there is this idea of, okay, what would happen if you had a, a breach of personal protective equipment and somebody got infected in the lab and that got out? Th those things certainly, we, we always need to be cautious about. We always need to be looking at mechanisms to be able to increase that protection. To me, the biggest question is, if we have people that are you know, living or, or in, you know, kind of moving into areas where we have bat roosts or we have other wildlife that, that we know carry many of these viruses, how do we decrease that direct contact? Because certainly in many areas of the world, um, you know, we're not talking about just you know, people that are bitten by that. We're talking about them being exposed to saliva or urine or feces or, or, or dead animals. Um, how do we decrease those contacts from occurring or at least make people more protected um, when they're undergoing the, through those activities? And it's not easy. Uh, you know, certainly in, in my travels through, through West Africa and beyond, this is not something where it's as easy as just saying, okay, we'll just get gloves out to these people. That would help. But also yeah. we have to start thinking about cultural aspect to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So we, we can't really fundamentally solve this problem till we know what created the problem. <laughs> we, we do have to get back to that origin issue. Absolutely. And, and the thing that we have to appreciate is that this is not something that within the next 90 days or the next six months, right. we're going to have an answer for. And that to me is one of the things we have to be prepared for is that the question of where did it come from? It could be, maybe we will have some miracle and in six months time, we, we find a bat that's infected. But this could be decades long. Certainly for Ebola, we're still looking for that bat that has infectious virus. Um, all the data tells us that this is where it came from, but it isn't as easy as just going and trapping bats and, and identifying it. So that part we have to be very prepared for and continuing to build up information and trying to change practices um, across the board that are going to decrease the risk of spillovers from occurring. I'm not optimistic that the Chinese are going to be um, completely transparent about this. And, and that's going to affect the research for people like you and millions like you around the world. It is. Transparency is something that that is certainly um, you know, is built up over years and can disappear uh, within the span of a few hours, right? So we, we have to be very wary of that. And certainly, we have to very, be very cautious of how we work through the politics of this. That from a science standpoint, listen, I think scientists collaborate very openly, and, and often we do this from a very apolitical fashion. Um, we need to figure out a way to build that bridge again, certainly with, with China and beyond, with these communities, to be able to try and figure out that, that answer. And, and it, again, it's not gonna happen overnight. We, we need very smart people that can navigate this. So we're in, as you say, the kind of the infancy of our understanding about where it all came from and how it started, but we seem to have gone a lot further on the vaccine front. Yeah. How is that possible? The possibility for all this comes back to the fact that we've been working on vaccines uh, with, I think, unbelievable speed uh, over the past few decades. So when we look at the advancement of vaccines, so looking at, say, 1980, when we announced the eradication of smallpox, to where we sit now in regards to the types of vaccines that are available and how many different platforms we have to use, that's why there's been such, um, I think, a fast-paced ability um, and an expedited ability for us to develop these vaccines is that the platforms weren't developed overnight. They've been going through years upon years uh, of, of making and testing and optimizing. MNRA-based. So, absolutely. Absolutely, right? So uh, what really changed was our ability to sequence viruses, so sequence the entire genome of viruses within the span of a few days. So having access to those genomes within you know, a few weeks, whereas during 2009, it took months of time to have that, that changed the dynamic completely because you could have people that were creating vaccines within the span of a few weeks of identification of the actual virus itself. Are we making the same progress on treatments? <sighs> yeah, so this is much more complicated. Um, <laughs> I think we're, we're making progress the difficulty is that when we think about treatment, so vaccines, you give somebody a vaccine, they develop an immune response, and they hopefully will not be able to get infected, although that's obviously a question, but hopefully they'll have protection from severe disease. When we think about treatments, now you have to think about what your treatment is targeting. Is it targeting the virus itself or is it targeting your actual immune response? Because those two things are very different. And depending on when you apply that therapeutic, you're going to have very different activities. And that's where the nuance of all of this becomes much, much greater 
And I think the difficulty in trying to identify a therapeutic that works within that defined window is extremely difficult. So I think we're making progress, um, but certainly trying to find something that actually gives uh, clinical uh, benefit to, to patients um, is a much greater task. Because as we have been discussing, these variants keep appearing. So we need to keep treating people who get sick before a vaccine is going to work or before they have been vaccinated. Well, and I think there's this, this idea that once we have the vaccines that, okay, that, that's it. We don't need a therapeutic. We're fine. Well, no, because again, we go back to this idea that supportive care in this area of the world and certainly in, in resource uh, plentiful settings supportive care systems can still get overwhelmed, but we have good supportive care. Um, when we look at those areas of the world right now that, that are being hit very hard by this virus, these are areas that, that don't have a lot of capacity for mechanical ventilation. Um, so those are the areas that we, we certainly need to have therapeutics. They will be stretched thin very, very quickly. I just wanna end on a, uh, just a question about what's going on in your head. There's all the energy that comes from we have a new scientific challenge here and we're going to build vaccines and 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 there's the the technical substantive side of your work you're also a human being with young children and you know all of that sort of thing where where are you sitting on this are are you going to go to a football game or are you going to get on a plane how do you think about it yeah, I, you know, one of the things that, that I'm looking forward to the most is honestly is getting back to Africa, right? So but when I look at this idea of where we are in COVID-19, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that COVID-19 didn't just stop the spread of all other infectious diseases, that COVID-19 is happening on top of everything else we have. So to me, that, that's where my headspace is, is that we've got to get through this public health crisis, uh, but we still have a number of public health crises that are going on in the background. And we have to somehow be able to get back to a point of being able to provide care and research uh, focus and clinical trials that are devoted to, to those uh, you know, additional uh, infectious diseases. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're kind of moving towards you know, a latter trajectory of COVID-19, um, but certainly it, it doesn't mean that the work is over. We, basically, it just means that attention will get focused back on things like Ebola and influenza and all the other infectious diseases that we continue to face. Okay, here's the really tough question. When you've got your second vaccine, do you still yeah. have to wear your mask? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was concerned you're gonna ask me about this. Oh, so so there, there's no easy answer, right? And so the, the, the easiest way I can say this is when we look at transmission between people that are, that are vaccinated, so the people that have gotten both vaccine doses, the likelihood and the risk of transmission is exceedingly low. So if you have a community of people that have both vaccines or fully immunized, the, the likelihood is no, there's gonna be no transmission and the masks are not gonna provide any additional benefit because transmission is already low. Then you start working backwards and you say, okay, what about people that are partially vaccinated? Well, again, the risk is still reduced in regards to infection but it's not gonna be reduced as much as you would see with two doses. So now that risk scale, scale starts to increase a little bit. So yeah, maybe in some of those cases, you wanna have people that are still masked. If you're dealing with people where you have a high number of unvaccinated people in a population and a very low population of people that are fully vaccinated, masks are likely still going to be required. So to me, the, the, the question that comes back to, to for all this is, where are we sitting in regards to test positivity rates, cases, and hospitalizations in our communities? Those should be really the driving influences 
on, on many of these restrictions. Everybody needs to just do their homework and find that out. Yeah, across across all levels, right? So okay. from from the public health communities through to, to us as individuals. So good to talk to you again. And I just I'm going to say this on behalf of everybody, not only from Saskatchewan, everybody. You make us proud for the work that you're doing. <laughs> and then I just want to profoundly thank you for the work that you're doing. So keep I, at it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Very, I certainly very uh, humbly accept that. But no, listen, this this work all falls onto the shoulders of so many people uh, across Canada and across the globe. So I'm but a very small cog in, in the wheel of, of people that are responding to this. But thank you. Well, we appreciate our conversations with this cog. So thanks. Thank <laughs> we'll you. We'll talk to you again soon. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, the Canada Research Chair at the University of Manitoba, infectious disease expert and a guy who's actually working on not only um, vaccines to counter COVID, but he's dealing with uh, infectious diseases around the world, that uh, more global perspective. Thanks again. All the best. Thank you. That's it for No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. We'll see you again next time.